Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo, the uh, senior editor here at BreastCancer.org. And as always, our guest today is our medical advisor, Dr. Brian Wojciechowski. He's going to explain some of the most recent research news articles that we've covered on the site and give us some insights into um, a little more detail behind them. Welcome, Brian. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I think we have some very interesting articles to discuss today. The first one I think is good because there is not a ton of research on inflammatory breast cancer. So I was very um, interested to see this study came out that had come out and it says that if you treat inflammatory breast cancer with what the researchers call trimodality treatment, um, which means three treatments, which is chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation, the outcomes, there's better survival if you have all three treatments compared to only treating inflammatory breast cancer with one or two of those treatments. And so I was hoping you could explain for us, first of all, why chemotherapy comes first when you treat inflammatory breast cancer. And also talk to us a little bit, just in case some uh, any, everybody doesn't know, what exactly is inflammatory breast cancer and how would that be considered different from invasive breast cancer? Okay. Well, inflammatory breast cancer is a type of invasive breast cancer. Oh, it is. Oh, sorry. (laughs) But it's a little different in terms of how it behaves and how it presents. Uh, The main feature of inflammatory breast cancer is skin involvement. And uh, it it is said that uh, the skin looks sort of like an orange peel. Okay. Yeah. And it's often not a discrete lump, but more diffuse involvement of the skin and breast. So oftentimes you don't palpate a mass, you just notice that the breast the breast is firm, it's red, and it's you know it's it's often hard. Okay. Is it warm too? Is it almost like it's swollen, like infected? It can be, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. why they call it inflammatory. Okay. Okay. So and as a general principle, uh, we do chemotherapy before surgery when we're trying to we're trying to make this the breast more operable. Basically, okay. so women with very large breast tumors, for example, can get chemotherapy before surgery in order to shrink it and make it easier to do the surgery. Okay. So, because of the very nature of inflammatory breast cancer, where it's more of a diffuse process than a discrete lump, doing the chemotherapy before surgery can shrink that and get it under control to make it easier for the surgeon to go in and take it out. Okay, and then if I'm Understanding right too, surgery to treat inflammatory breast cancer is almost always a mastectomy, correct? correct. There's no lumpectomy because there's no lump. There's no lump, exactly. Okay. It's diffuse involvement, so we always do a mastectomy. Okay, and then the radiation is to zap any of the remaining cancer cells behind. Right, because inflammatory cancer, uh, besides being a diffuse process where it's in, in, it involves a lot of the skin and soft tissues, is also very aggressive and tends to come back more often than run-of-the-mill cancers. So you really want to hit it with every modality that you can, including hormone therapy afterward or, you know, Herceptin therapy if, if the patient's cancer is HER2 positive. Okay, okay. And so if somebody gets diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer and the particular person's doctor only recommends, say, chemotherapy and surgery, it 
make sense for somebody to ask why, correct? Because it sounds like using all three treatments is really the best way to go, and that is the standard of care. It really is the standard of care for inflammatory breast cancer and has been for quite some time. Okay. So if a woman is not getting all three, there really better be a very good reason. Okay. Okay, like like some sort of medical contraindication, you know, that she can't get chemo or she can't get radiation. Okay. Because as this study shows us, there's good reasons uh, for not getting the treatments, you know, such as comorbidities and other medical problems that preclude it, and there's bad reasons, Mm -hmm. such as socioeconomic status or insurance. Okay. Okay. Um, Our second study I thought was interesting because I had never read anything about this before. There were two studies that looked at a relationship between moles, which uh, doctors apparently call nevi. A single is a nevus. I I learned a lot when I was uh, reading about this study. Um, And they are linked to a higher risk of breast cancer. And I want to be clear that moles do not cause breast cancer. It really seems to be that having a lot of moles is linked to having more estrogen in the body, which can also be linked to breast cancer. So to start, Brian, for those of us who have a lot of moles and or freckles, can you tell us the difference between a mole and a freckle so people aren't freaking out? So a freckle is a flat pigmented area on the skin, okay. and a mole is, generally speaking, a raised area with a distinct uh, border that you can feel when you run your finger over it. Okay. And it's, it's moles that generally can progress to you know, skin cancers and not freckles. Right. Okay, yeah, because I, I learned that, too, that moles are, if you have a lot of moles, you have a higher risk of skin cancer, too, mm-hmm. because they can become cancerous. Right. So the, there were two studies. One was a French study, and one was the nurse's health study. And the French study showed that the link between having a lot of moles and a higher risk of breast cancer was only in premenopausal women. Um, the nurse's health study was only looking at white women. So there were some sort of limitations to these studies, correct? That's true. They were limited in their scope. However, they were prospective studies. So based on that, they are relatively strong. Okay. And can you remind us again what a prospective study means? What does that mean? Prospective study is when you take, for example, two groups of women, one with a lot of moles, one with no moles, and follow them over time looking for uh, differences of a particular outcome. Okay. And that's generally considered the strongest study design as opposed to a retrospective study where you're starting after the fact, after all the outcomes ha- have already occurred and you're looking back in time. Okay. So, yeah, so the, it, a, a retrospective study in this case would be people or women were diagnosed with breast cancer and then the researchers went back and looked at how many moles they had. That's right. And and by doing it that way, you you introduce uh, more opportunities for bias and therefore uh, the the validity of the study is is in question. Okay. And so as we were talking, the strongest point from these studies is that we don't want people to, to get very, very concerned if they have moles because moles, again, moles don't cause breast cancer, correct? But they seem to be an indication of higher levels of estrogen, correct? Mm-hmm. And so is it that the estrogen is causing more moles to form? Is that... Well, I, the... I don't think we know for sure, but that's what these studies seem to suggest, that okay. higher levels of estrogen are associated with more moles. Okay. 
and higher levels of estrogen, excuse me, can cause hormone receptor positive breast cancer to develop and grow. So that's where the concern is. Exactly. But ultimately, it sounds like we're not quite sure how this could all fit into any sort of risk assessment yet because it's so new. Yeah, women who have a lot of moles shouldn't get worried at this point because there's really nothing actionable for them here. Okay. It doesn't mean that they have to get mammograms more frequently or anything like that because we just don't know that yet. We don't have that data. Okay. We, we don't really know how to how to apply this information and you know, I, I think a lot more studies have to be done before women who have a lot of moles are treated any different from from any other woman. Okay. okay. So the same the same guidelines apply to women with, with more moles that that apply to uh, you know any other woman in the general population. Okay. Just somebody with an average risk of breast cancer. Exactly. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, now we had another study that was looking at women with abnormal BRCA one and BRCA two genes. And the researchers found that if these women were diagnosed with breast cancer, women with an abnormal BRCA1 gene who had their ovaries and fallopian tubes removed were more likely to survive the breast cancer. Um, and it was interesting to me that the protective effects of the surgery were found primarily in women with the abnormal BRCA1 gene as opposed to the BRCA2, abnormal BRCA2 gene. Um, but I... And it was, there were two studies, so there was that one that found that result of the benefit, but then there was another study that found that women who did have this protective surgery, their quality of life was affected because you immediately get thrown into menopause, you're premenopausal women, and all of a sudden you may have sleeping problems, you may have problems thinking and remembering, you may have hot flashes, you probably do, and there may be problems with sexual function. So... If Brian, if you could talk a little bit about the differences between having an abnormal BRCA1 gene and an abnormal BRCA2 gene and what what that means for an individual woman, like what she may want to consider. Yes, yeah, so everyone has a BRCA1 and 2 gene. It's when they are abnormal and there's genetic changes to those genes that a woman's risk of breast or uh, ovarian cancer goes up considerably. Now, in this study, the benefit was seen mostly in women with BRCA1, and that could be because, generally speaking, women with BRCA1 are at higher risk of breast cancer anyway. Okay. But it's just in abstract form, so it hasn't been published yet, so I'm only speculating there. Okay. Um, because of the poor quality of life that happens when you get, the ov- when you get your ovaries out, uh, there has been some doubt or reluctance among physicians to, to recommend this surgery at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very helpful study because it, it provides a very strong reason, a very strong rationale to now recommend having that surgery because there's no better outcome in medicine than you know, something, that, uh, something that increases your survival. Right, right. And we should point out that these women with the abnormal genes were already diagnosed with breast cancer. So this study does not apply to women who are at high risk because they know they have one of these abnormal genes but have not been diagnosed. That's correct. Uh, you know, women with, women with BRCA1 who've never had breast cancer can still opt to get their ovaries removed, mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that. But right. this particular study applies only to women who have had breast cancer. Right, okay. And and again, we do want to emphasize that this is a very um, personal decision. 
And you do need to be aware that there are side effects. You know, you are going to have an effect on your quality of life. And you just need to sit down and talk to your doctor, talk to your family, think about it and see if it's the right decision for you. It, it could be, it could be, or it could be not. It's the right decision for some women and it's not the right decision for other women. Um, but it is an option. Exactly. And this study does, um, as you said, Brian, gives us some pretty strong evidence that if a woman has this abnormal gene and has been diagnosed, there are some benefits too. So again, as with any treatment or any procedure that you have, we always say on breastcancer.org, you need to weigh the risks and the benefits and see how that fits with your personal preferences and your tolerability of risk and what you want to do. So, um, but at least we have evidence now that there are some benefits, which is good, right? That's I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, that's good because you're the expert. Um, and then our third. I'm just writing your coattails. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, or not our third. Our fourth and final study. I thought this was also very interesting. It got quite a bit of coverage in the media. I know there were stories in the New York Times. There were stories all over the web. This is talking about um, using 3D mammograms, which are also called digital tomosynthesis. And Brian and I were talking before we started here that that's very confusing to have two names for the same procedure. And you combine that with digital mammography, and this technique, both techniques find more cancers and with fewer false positives. So to start with, Brian, um, can you sort of explain what a 3D mammogram is? and how it's different from a digital mammogram. So let's start from the beginning. When mammograms... <laughs> Way back when. <laughs> when mammograms were first born, uh, they consisted of really two x-rays of the breast from different angles. Okay. So, so that was called a 2D mammogram. Okay. And this was in the days when... Uh, you know, when when you read an X-ray, it was on an actual film. It was film, a giant that, sheet of film. Yeah, a giant yeah. film that you held in your hand and stuck up on the wall uh, behind, in front box. of the light. Yeah, yep. a light yep. box. And and you read it that way. Okay. So fast forward uh, decades into the future, and you you had the development of digital mammography, okay. where instead of putting the X-ray picture on a piece of film you put it on a, um, on a computer image. Mm-hmm. So the radiologist could manipulate that image. He could zoom in or zoom out, and uh, you could change the, uh, the brightness of it, that sort of thing. Okay. And it, you know, it, it improved on the Proof existing. the accuracy. Yeah. So, uh, so three-dimensional mammograms are basically looking at the breast from uh, three angles. So you have that additional dimension. Okay. And, uh, and, and of course, because it's 2014, they're digital. You know, okay. They're not, it's, it's, not, it's not the old film mammography. Right. So, so it actually takes more images of the breast. Yeah, and therefore you get a little bit higher radiation exposure. Okay. Okay. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this technique leads to less false positives. Okay, and can you, if that was going to be my next question, can you just sort of give a brief synopsis of what a false positive is? Yeah, a false positive is basically when they find something on the mammogram that looks concerning and you get a biopsy and it's benign. 
Okay. So, and it's usually stressful because I've had them and you get called back and you're wondering what they saw Are you know, are they going to see it again? Is it, are they going to tell me I've been diagnosed with cancer? Um, so it is, it is stressful and you may have to have another scan. You may have to have a biopsy, which is surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, you may have to have several more visits. So I, I can see why false positives are a problem. Yeah. It's extremely stressful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it decreases the rate of false positives and it detects more cancers than con- than conventional mammograms. Okay. And those are two uh, really important uh, advances with Absol- this technique. Absolutely, because the false positives, too, um, and if people are regular readers of our website, um, there's been some controversy over mammograms. Do all women need mammograms? And invariably, people point to either false positives or over-treatments as the problem with mammograms because they're finding things that either look suspicious and aren't, they turn out to be fine, or they're finding things that don't need to be treated. So, in a sense, this is kind of improving on mammograms. Right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's a step forward. It's a better mammogram. Okay. No doubt. And it, But it's also my understanding, too, that these they're available at a lot of places, but not everywhere. So if you happen to live in an urban area with university hospitals, teaching hospitals, research hospitals, you could probably get a digital, or uh, yeah, a 3D mammogram if you wanted one. And add, add affluent communities to that list. Okay. Yeah. Okay, because they are more expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it requires more of an upfront investment from the hospital. Okay. So, but if you, say, lived in a very... Um, remote area that perhaps wasn't as affluent, you're probably not going to have this piece of equipment at your local mammogram center. Yeah, you would probably have to travel considerable a considerable distance. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, do you think that every woman needs to have a 3D mammogram? I don't think so. I don't think we have enough information on what are the long-term outcomes now, we know it's a slightly higher dose of radiation. Mm-hmm. Most doctors are not concerned about that because it's still a very low dose. Mm-hmm. But still, we don't know the long-term impact of that. We also don't know if it changes any particular outcomes. Say, you know, do women who have 3D mammograms have a better survival than women who have conventional 2D mammograms? Mm-hmm. So I would not say that women listening to this podcast have an imperative that they need, they absolutely have to go get a 3D mammogram. Okay. Uh, we, we really can't say that yet. Okay. But suffice it to say, what we do know, and this is beyond a doubt, is that 3D mammograms are slightly better mm-hmm. in terms of decreasing the rate of false positives and detecting more cancers. Okay. So my feeling is that if I were uh, a woman who was mammogram age, I'd probably want to get it. Okay. Uh, but I don't think there's, um, I don't think it's written in stone that you have to at this point. Okay. And if you don't have the option of getting one, you're not getting substandard care with a digital mammogram. You're still getting a good test. Yeah, you're still getting a very good, very effective test that I will reiterate, as I have many times in the past, does save lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. You know, we know that there are a lot of false positives associated with mammograms. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but women's lives will be saved by getting mammograms. Okay. So, so to me, it's it's still that 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 is the most compelling uh, argument that you know mammograms are good and and, and should be done 
routinely. Mm -hmm. From the age of 40 on, annual mammogram. That's what, that's your position. I know that's breastcancer.org's position. Mm -hmm. And um, I would add if there are, if anyone's listening out there and you don't get a mammogram because you don't know where to go or you don't think you can afford it or you find them painful, there are ways to overcome all those three, all those things and any other reasons that you might have for not getting one. And if you go to our website, we have a whole page on mammograms that will talk all about that and where you can get one at low or no cost, how you can have the procedure be less painful, um, where you, how you can find a center so that does mammograms. So there's lots of information there. And, um, and I guess we'll wait, too, to see if there's more research that comes out. And ultimately, if it turns out that 3D mammograms do have better outcomes, then it seems like probably everyone will be switching. I mean, it sounds like a lot of hospitals are getting the equipment because, mm -hmm. as you say, it is better and people want to have the best care possible. Exactly, so. yeah. All right. Anything else about that, Brian? I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is always a very informative podcast. Uh, thank you for stopping in. We thank everybody for listening. And we'll probably be back again next month with another breastcancer.org research newscast. Thanks, everyone, for listening.